listen to your breath. Welcome back to Portrait of the Autist as an Old Man. I'm Dylan Brody. As I produce the Modern Depression Guidebook as an audiobook, I find myself reviewing my thoughts at the time when I was a young man, deeply depressed, believing in a romantic way that I could literally write my way free of the depression, that if I could clarify the thoughts well enough, I would be free of them. I didn't yet understand that it was chemical. I certainly didn't understand yet that there was something neurological at play that was causing many of the problems that led to the depression, that led me to hate myself so, so deeply at the time. It seems to me now that the, the joke of the book, the Modern Depression Guidebook, the idea that depression is an inherent and natural part of life has sort of fallen apart for me now. I remember at one point I said to my father shortly after I got on medication for my depression, I, I told him that I, I felt better, that for the first time in my life, I didn't curl up into a fetal position and contemplate suicide every night, trying not to sob so that at least I wasn't keeping my wife awake with my pain. And he said, oh, Dylan, I don't understand this modern thing where people think they can just take a pill and be happy all the time. And honestly, the, the medication didn't solve all of my problems. It didn't soothe everything away so that I no longer experience emotional pain or psychic damage. Certainly the neurological issues still affect my life and sometimes I still go into deep depression even with the medication and my new awareness of some of its causes. But this idea that we should reject relief from pain because there is a neurotic romanticization of the sorrow of psychic anguish is just an antiquated notion when poets were to suffer from melancholia. Now when I look at this book as I read it aloud again I see what I was thinking I understand the funny in it. But I feel as though there was sort of a nihilistic joke in it that I was condemned to always be depressed, that we are all who suffer from depression condemned always to be depressed. And I think that was personally nihilistic in a way that I recognize now. And I think we've become unhealthily nihilistic as a society. So I'm not sure how much I really agree with a lot of the book. We'll be getting to chapter one proper in just a moment. But I've just been thinking about the zombie-festered fantasies, you know, the, the post-apocalyptic hero hopes and the nihilistic shock worshippers encouraged by artless gore vendors, brain-slurping builders of dystopian futures, the present tweaked to contain hapless, thoughtless straw men against whom we might vent in impotent dark age white rage. These guileless, childlike entertainments fall short to burn within the confines of stunted imagination tricked to bypass empathy. The buttressed walls of soothing cliché tales troped us all to cynical acceptance. 
Now we see society gone postal, dark-skinned people concentrated in prison camps, sick and guiltless but for borders. Their cages sweltering and crowded, humanity ignored as once the Catholic Church denied the science that might threaten their hold on the public narrative that they could control truth by silencing those who dared to learn. Now too, protecting obsolete belief in failing systems. Dependent on an under-informed populace, the aging leadership contracts in raging spasms against the flow of nature. How can one oppose progress? Crusades kept young and angry men from rising up in Europe hungry, craving achievement and camaraderie. Speak of sacrifice of the individual for society. I'd be decried a communist. But, oh, speak no ill of those who serve in the military, and for their heroism they shall board first for travel, still seated in coach, but honored to get there early. How long shall the Middle East be the dumping ground for our poor white people? How long will the prison system be the holding ground for our black men and women who committed crimes no greater than the weed and cash exchange that fueled my prep school's white kids' economy? The straw men never come. At every turn, we must again encounter the fragile sameness, the beautiful, shared, flawed connection, our humanity. And now, reminded by the spreading virus, as once Europe was reminded by the rat-spread plague that proved a church had no pull with any god, if ever a god had been, we turn inward, go dormant, no death to come without exception. Too late we know our failures. A nation rising bright from the Renaissance turned a stockinged calf and bowed elegantly, executed the North American genocide, declared itself the child of destiny manifest, and claimed a crown of enlightenment. Writing a constitution on the skin of black people, building a nation on the burial grounds of the nations that had grown up before. Forging the steel tracks to cross a continent on the bent backs of the Chinese. Brutalizing all it did not see as white, as civilized, as Christian, as familiar, as healthy, as pure, as straight, as clean, as smart, as American as we. <sighs> Too late. Realize that we have squandered intellects and artisans, thinkers, builders, creators. Too late we realize we are all complicit, for now the plague is here and we again, medieval in our urges, have sabotaged our progress, drunk from the leaded aqueducts, lost our senses to revelry and indolence. Pandemic comes and will come again, it cycles back, we feel it and we fear it brings our due. There shall be bodies stacked to burn at every intersection. Flames will turn the stench. Decomposition turns to smells like spitted pork and guilty, knowing once they would have thought it wrong, the people of this once great land will salivate, lost, hungry, hoping. Not zombies. Us. And all the same, struggling with a complex past, rebuilding from rubble and grief, from error and shame, from new and newly built foundations, we, or people almost indistinguishably like us, will experience a relearning, and perhaps someday 
learning love and compassion as thoroughly as we claim our deities would like us to, accepting our small parts in a larger whole, we may leave behind our end-days dreams, trade greed for generosity, do the necessary mathematics to discover our place as symbiotes within a system, and exploring outward, instead of parasites overwhelming a host, grasping desperately for space. Times innumerable we have built to own, fought to claim, burned down the makings of our fellow humans. Now let us write a new destiny for a species. Let us evolve to our greatest potential, not our greatest dominance. Let us cooperate with one another and the mathematics of natural law to live on to expand our sphere of influence, awareness, compassion, and carrying it to the vast friendness of the cosmos. We live in a dark age, but I genuinely believe that if we can all spark our greatest inventive and creative impulses, we can still change the world and save the world. I am less pessimistic than I was when I wrote this book. Nonetheless, here we go. Chapter one, the modern depression guidebook. Enjoy it. Chapter one, getting started. Opportunity is rare and a wise man will never let it go by him. Bayard Taylor. This sounds really impressive, but tell the truth. How often do you really hear people talk about this guy's great accomplishments? Do not miss the opportunity to get your depression started. Sometimes the initial indicators can go unnoticed and a perfectly good depression can slip away before it even has a chance to get started. Keep your eyes open for the signs. When you awaken in the morning, is your first thought a twinge of resentment at the sunlight for barging in unceremoniously through your window to disturb your sleep? Do you find yourself cursing at birds for singing so insistently? Does the cuteness of puppies strike you as cloying and needy? Any of these stray thoughts may imply that your mood is ready to make the grand decline. If you awaken in the morning, go to brush your teeth and, on first seeing yourself in the mirror, think, oh great, this guy again. You might be ready to start in on a worthwhile depression. If you begin to think of Emily, the cute and friendly postal carrier, as the girl who brings bills and trash to my door, this could be an opportunity to get things underway. If ice cream sounds too sweet, orange juice sounds too sour, and every opinion you express sounds too bitter, you could be walking through the twilight that comes at the onset of night. The signs can be subtle, but if you make the effort, you can see to it that your opportunity does not pass you by. When you spot a sign, even a very small one, take the time to sigh heavily. Let your shoulders droop under the weight of what is to come next. Look into the near future and see the shadows that will soon engulf you. When depressive opportunity knocks, 
answer the door. Or better yet, sit on your couch and shout toward the door that it is welcome to come in and make itself comfortable. If you ignore it now, it will just be back knocking again tomorrow, and then it will come with a hand-scrawled note pointing out that you are such a loser you even procrastinate before getting a proper depression started. Overreaction is your friend. Naturally, this applies to negative stimuli, such as a paper cut, uh, the, the news of a deadly, though distant, mining disaster, or a phone call from a parent. Take any of these as an opportunity to curse, bemoan the bad luck, and recognize the splendid, all-you-can-eat buffet of crap that life has to offer on a daily basis. But also, and perhaps more importantly, overreact to positive stimuli. When the UPS truck comes down the street, become as gleeful and excited as a child on the way to a petting zoo. This way, when it turns out that the truck is visiting your neighbor or delivering nothing more than a pile of unwanted old belongings that your father was tired of having clutter up your former bedroom, which he has now decided to turn into a workshop, your hopes can be dashed leaving you as miserable and whiny as that same child when actually in the middle of the petting zoo, besieged by sickly goats craving attention and ostriches with neither social skills nor child-loving instincts. If an attractive person smiles at you in passing, allow yourself to imagine that it is the beginning of a great and lasting romance when it turns out not to be the beginning of a great and lasting romance, respond to the crushing end of a deep and meaningful relationship. Do this enough times in one day and the truth about romance will begin to penetrate your awareness. Romance is a myth perpetuated by greeting card companies, diamond distributors, and Hollywood writers who are trying to impress their girlfriends and boyfriends. Be aware that those very girlfriends and boyfriends will eventually abandon and disillusion them, leaving them to write morose novels that they will be unable to sell. When that happens, when their love fades, their talent proves a fleeting and transient thing, their bank accounts begin to dwindle, and they find themselves alone and afraid in a dark and empty world with no real plan for the future and a constantly diminishing personal worth, they will be just like you. Reflect on this at great length. You are on your way. Sometimes there will be no advance warning. You'll be a day or two into a depression before you notice that it is coming on. You notice the little sub-symptoms first. You notice, for instance, an unusually large stack of pizza delivery boxes in your kitchen. It occurs to you that you have been screening calls since Thursday and not even the voices of your close friends have prompted you to pick up the receiver. You discover that you have gone out to the grocery store in your pajamas and a bathrobe to save yourself the effort of putting on clothes that you will just have to take off again in the late evening. A depression is surely setting in. The pressure from the world around you is very strong just to cheer up. Every television commercial promises to solve the problem. Sad people buy the right detergent and they become happy. Sad people eat the right fast food and they become happy. 
Sad people find the lowest priced insurance and they become happy. Go ahead and purchase these products based on these implied promises. They will not help. They are not really mood-altering substances. If they were mood-altering substances strong enough to make a dent in a solid depression, it would not be legal to sell them. Buying them in the hopes that they will provide much-needed relief will cost money and disappoint you. Any disappointment you can experience right now will serve you well as you move forward into the blackness. If you tell a friend that you are becoming depressed, your friend will offer practical suggestions to solve the problem. Burn candles or incense or flavored oil and you will feel better. Meditate or pray or hire a therapist and you will work it out. Go jogging or golfing or skiing and the endorphins will get you feeling good. The sunlight, the blood flow, the cold air do not give in to the temptation, not even out of a sense of loyalty and friendship. Do not give in to the pressure. None of those things will work anyway. You know that because you have the special gift of insight that only depression offers. The insight to know that nothing will work. Nothing is going to make things better and there is a good chance that trying to make things better will only make things much, much worse. Knowing this, you realize that any attempt to make things better will only serve to remind you that nothing you do is going to make things better. So buckle yourself in as though that'll really help if there is actually an accident and enjoy the ride. Things are going to get bleaker before they get any brighter and there is no guarantee that brighter is ever really going to show up in the forecast at all. This depression is now officially underway and the only good news is that this time you have a guidebook grasped firmly in your sweatless, fatalistic little hand, promising to lead you through every miserable step of the experience and guaranteeing never, ever, even in the subtlest of ways, to attempt to cheer you up. Have your favorite comfort foods on hand. Eating them is not going to make you feel any better at all. Eating a great deal of them, however, will serve to make you feel overstuffed and physically uncomfortable, which is very good for depression as it harmonizes quite well with emotional discomfort. Also, these foods are generally the least healthy for you overall and will offer up a good number of subsidiary self-loathing triggers to accelerate the slide into a pit of despair. A slow but steady weight gain, for instance, can only serve you in this regard. Consuming mass-packaged poison of any sort also gives you the chance to demonstrate to yourself that you are utterly self-destructive, while whatever small comfort you take from the taste and texture proves that you are also completely self-indulgent and devoid of willpower. If you choose carefully, you may be able to find one or two really good comfort foods that will cause their own commercial jingles to play continuously at the back of your head, thus filling you with a combined sense of cultural subliteracy and gullible manipulability. The following is a brief list first of good comfort foods for use in depression, which I will then follow with a list of not-so-good comfort foods. Some good comfort foods. Macaroni and cheese. Hot fudge sundae. Oreo cookies. Cheetos. 
Philly cheesesteak sandwiches, potato latkes with sour cream, ice cream eaten directly from the tub over the sink, stupid comfort foods, tofu, celery, rice cakes, steamed artichokes, lentils, and rhubarb. I also like to have some foods I genuinely dislike on hand, so that after I have finished off every last crumb of the stuff I enjoy, I can consume the stuff I despise while hating myself for eating something so terrible, rather than getting off my fat ass and going to the store. That, of course, is up to you, but it helps me considerably to build my velocity in the magnificent descent. Television is an important tool. Like comfort food, it serves many functions in the settling-in stage of a depression. It provides an endless source of things to be depressed about. Newscasts bring you up-to-the-minute reports on terrible things happening all over the world. Daytime talk shows constantly present unlikable people with horrible and unsolvable problems. Soap operas remind you insidiously that people with no discernible talent are making a hundred times more than you ever will. But TV's most important function is that it gives you something to stare at blankly while accomplishing nothing. Nothing, I repeat, nothing is more helpful in the establishment of a depression than accomplishing nothing. While there is no rule that says that you may not accomplish anything while you are watching TV, it is a proven law of nature stretching back to the Neolithic era that human beings are physiologically incapable of accomplishing anything useful while watching television. Observe the following set of lists. Things you could accomplish while watching television. Sorting the laundry, cleaning the coffee table, writing your niece a birthday card, composing a poem, alphabetizing your CD collection if you still retain a CD collection. This book was written in 1994. Things you will accomplish while watching TV. Consuming comfort food. Now that you're settled in, glassy-eyed, vaguely uncomfortable, and dead certain that doing anything else or being anywhere else would just make you feel worse, you are ready to get down to serious business. Basic depression exercise number one. Make a list of your most secret dreams and aspirations. Point at it and laugh. Throw it away. Basic depression exercise number two. List your three most recent accomplishments. Compare them to the accomplishments of your heroes. When you realize that your achievements are not so much accomplishments as merely completed tasks, throw the list away. Basic depression exercise number three. 
Imagine you are sitting alone on a beach. Feel the warmth of the sun. Smell the salt air. Realize that you are still the same person that you were before you started imagining this, only now you also have sand in your butt crack. Notice that you are using up precious moments of your life imagining your butt crack. You can find the Modern Depression Guidebook at dylanbrody.com in the Emporium. You can also find all of my other books and CDs there. For those of you who would like to get this podcast just a little bit earlier or who would be interested in looking at uh, beta level reader works and seeing video and so on, go over to dylanbrody.com slash Patreon. I've got a page there where you can get all sorts of wondrous stuff for your entertainment and delight. I'm Dylan Brody. This is Portrait of the Autist. As an old man, you are a delight and a joy. I produce Portrait of the Autist as an old man weekly with a good deal of gratitude toward Ayesola Lewis as well as Active Voice Productions. If you want to know more about Active Voice Productions, you can go to activevoiceproductions.com. If you want to know more about my work and if you want to hear the entirety of the Modern Depression Guidebook as a newly released audiobook, Head over to dylanbrody.com, scroll down. All of my work is available there at dylanbrody.com slash emporium. Let me know if there's anything you would like to hear more of, less of, or what have you. Just send your notes to comments at activevoiceproductions.com. And if you're not cruel and insulting, they'll pass them on to me. Thanks. Thanks.